Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Stick around until the end of this podcast for a preview of a recent episode exploring the history of investors holding businesses accountable and the dawn of the ESG, or Environmental Social Governance, movement. From NPR and WBUR Boston, I'm Jane Clayson, and this is On Point. Demonstrations and violence in Minneapolis after a black man, George Floyd, is killed by white police. Also yesterday, President Trump unveiled an executive order taking aim at social media companies, which he says are policing speech. Currently, social media giants like Twitter receive an unprecedented liability shield based on the theory that they're a neutral platform, which they are not. And the devastating milestone this week, 100,000 Americans have died of coronavirus. Here's CBS News correspondent David Begnaud yesterday. 100,000 people dead. If when the lockdown started around this country, you would have said to someone, 100,000 people might die in four months, they would have been shocked. Nobody would have believed it. But that is our reality today. It's our weekly news roundtable. With us from Washington is Kimberly Atkins, senior news correspondent for WBUR. Kim, great to have you with us. Hi, Jane. Also with us from Washington is Anita Kumar, White House correspondent and associate editor for Politico. Anita, welcome back to you. Thanks for having me back. And Eugene Scott, also with us, political reporter for The Washington Post. Eugene, great to have you as well. Thanks for having me. So we passed a grim milestone in the pandemic this week, 100,000 Americans dead in the United States. We'll get to all the coronavirus news in just a few minutes. But first, a major American city erupting right now. Let's begin in Minneapolis with the death of George Floyd this week and the protests that have followed. Uh, Floyd, who is black, of course, died after being handcuffed and pinned to the ground by a white police officer whose knee was on Floyd's neck for several minutes. Eugene Scott, a third night of violence. Describe for us what happened overnight in Minneapolis. Well, what we saw overnight in Minneapolis were demonstrators uh, responding to uh, issues of police violence that they deeply believe have been ignored uh, by their political leaders and even their business leaders. And these uprisings are not uh, significantly different from how we have seen um, protesters across the world throughout history uh, respond when they're seeking the attention of uh, people in power. Uh, they know history has proven that uh, disrupting uh, capitalist structures uh, attracts attention from uh, people in positions of influence in ways uh, that the murder or killing, should I say, of uh, unarmed and nonviolent people does not. And so uh, we've seen lawmakers respond to that even uh, as far up to the White House. Um, And now the uh, response to the killing of George Floyd seems to be moving in a different direction. Well, let me play the sound first before we talk about the many issues associated with this. Um, here is the sound. It's this disturbing footage of George Floyd's arrest taken by a bystander on Monday. The video shows a white police officer with his knee on George Floyd's neck. A warning to listeners, this is graphic and hard to hear. Just get up. What do you want? I can't breathe. The the video, Anita, is just horrific. George Floyd can be heard pleading, I can't breathe, I can't breathe, over and over again. And bystanders pleading for him to get off. What strikes you about this video and what's happening right now in Minneapolis, Anita? Well, I guess what we're hearing so much from is, you know, so many people watched this video, saw this video. It's been everywhere. And, you know, protesters and people are saying, why hasn't there been an arrest? Uh, Why hasn't, you know, the city, the police department taken action? And of course, these four officers that are involved were relieved of their duties. They're not working, but there haven't been the arrests and, and people are waiting for that. And so, you know, we saw some comments yesterday from, I believe, the police chief saying, well, we're still, or the, you know, the prosecutors, we're still looking at this case. We're still looking at that evidence, uh, what other evidence there is. And then there was sort of a quick walk back. Well, there's not other evidence, but we're still taking a look at the case. And I think the frustrating part for people there that are protesting is 
what is taking so long? You have video, and then we've seen this over and over again across the country when you have video, um, but there's this delay in in what's happening here, and there's a delay in an arrest if there's going to be one. Kimberly Atkins, were the officers wearing body cam videos, and if so, if so, why aren't they being released? Where are they in this moment of public outrage? Yeah, so this week we did see the release of some redacted body cam video uh, from the arrest of George Floyd, which showed some, not all, uh, of the situation leading up to uh, his his tragic death there on the street. Um, But it did not shed any, it certainly didn't shed any exculpatory uh, light on the situation that happened. It was still the same sort of scene uh, from a different, uh, from a different vantage point, which essentially uh, confirmed what uh, George Floyd's uh, attorneys and family had said from the beginning was that there did not appear to be any resist, uh, any resisting of the police officers, which seems to make the case all the more clear. There are also other uh, civilian uh, video that was released from different angles that basically just paint a a deeper picture of what we already saw. And I think that is adding to the frustration here uh, that there has been no arrest. Look, after countless, uh, unfortunately, countless cases of unarmed black people dying at the hands of police in recent years, the the vast majority of those not ending uh, in an arrest or, or a conviction, uh, that is part of the frustration of all of this, is that the, the system does not seem to be working for people who, black people who die in the same way that it works for others. It sort of compounded when this morning we, many of us watched on live television while, while a black CNN reporter was arrested uh, while doing his job, Omar Jimenez. Uh, so arrest can happen clearly in Minnesota, but not when on tape. Right, but a, but a white seamless. reporter from CNN was also on the scene and was Correct. not arrested. A block away. Right. A block away, uh, and he was able to continue to reporting. So all of this is adding to the frustration it is that it it compounds the frustrations of the protesters. I think it's also important to say, yes, fires were lit, including uh, the police precinct that was burned down. But when you watched the protests happening, there was a lot of pain. There were a lot of people in the streets who were expressing their pain, their frustration, uh, and who were doing so peacefully. Um, and so I think we have to be very careful about how we contextualize that and be very careful about what the response is going to be, particularly the president, given that he tweeted uh, basically what seemed to be a suggestion that police should shoot protesters last night. And we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, Let me play first this clip. Um, This is the Minneapolis mayor, Jacob Fry, after George Floyd's death, talking about this notion that this was not a split-second decision by these police officers. What happened on on that street? Here is Mayor Fry. There's somewhere around 300 seconds in those five minutes, every one of which the officer could have turned back, every second of which he could have removed his knee from George Floyd's neck. Eugene Scott, he could have. Uh, And what's striking is so many bystanders were pleading for the officer to remove his knee before you see the limp body of George Floyd, uh, you know, removed. Um, The prosecutors have said they've not decided whether to charge the officer or the officers uh, in this incident. Talk about that more. Why not? Why will this officer, Derek Chauvin, uh, go, you know, to this point, go free, the the man who was kneeling on George Floyd's neck? Well, um, it is believed that police unions have protections in place that allow law enforcement officers to use uh, this type of force. Uh, to justify their response uh, that would allow them to escape prosecution. Um, And that is the frustration that many people, um, particularly black people, have with this uh, situation, that they do not feel protected uh, from law enforcement and feel like uh, there's no way for justice actually to be uh, served when this community um, of police officers can uh, use fears or concerns um, about their own safety uh, as an excuse for uh, violent behavior that ultimately can lead to the end of someone's life. 
other protests uh, in Memphis, in uh, Los Angeles, in Phoenix, the state capital in Denver, Colorado, was put on lockdown after someone fired a gun near the peaceful demonstrations um, there with regard to George Floyd, Columbus, Ohio, I mean, all over. Anita, what is the Justice Department saying about a federal investigation into George Floyd's death? Well, they are looking at it in the White House and the Department of Justice had said that they were going to have an investigation. And I think we're seeing local, state and federal investigators into this. But, you know, they're all sort of saying that this takes time and that they will have to look at the evidence, talk to people and do more than, you know, a lot of other people are doing, which is watching this video and and wanting something right away. So, you know, we will see those things. But you know, it's a, it's really at this point, a question of how quickly that will come and how much uh, people will stay out there and, and continue press protesting until they see something, see some results. Let me play this clip. This is George Floyd's brother, uh, Felonis Floyd, um, speaking uh, about his brother to CNN yesterday. I'm never going to get my brother back. <laughs> I'm sorry. We need justice. We need justice. Those four officers need to be arrested. They executed my brother in broad daylight. People had to film that. People had to see that. People pleaded for his life. Kids, I know they were out there seeing this. Nobody wanted to witness that. Nobody. Nobody should have to witness that. Eugene Scott, it's it's just so painful uh, to to hear. Um, before we go to break here in our last twenty seconds, uh, put this into perspective. What goes through your mind when you hear the the brother of of George Floyd there? You know, I was actually having a conversation with a police officer this morning, uh, questioning um, why I lacked confidence that justice would be served. And there were two things. One would be the fact that we have seen so many law enforcement officers go free uh, despite uh, video evidence uh, involved in the killing of unarmed people. But more deeply, to this brother's point, is we need to rethink our ideas of justice. Enforcement officer is convicted, even if it's a multi-million-dollar settlement. The words that he said that were most important are, "He will not get his brother back," and that is of greatest concern. We are talking about the week's top stories this hour. When we come back, more from Minneapolis and a hundred thousand Americans dead due to coronavirus. I'm Jane Clayson. This is On Point. Much more ahead. We'll be right back. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform that lets you find candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash On Point. That's Indeed.com slash On Point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Listen on for a preview of one of the episodes. ESG, or Environmental Social Governance, challenges businesses to think beyond the immediate bottom line. But before ESG, the Balance Scorecard did something similar. Questrom's Eddie Riedel explains. The big thing that was groundbreaking about the balanced scorecard is really this idea to move beyond thinking about financial statements, which everybody had thought about since the 1920s, right? That was kind of the gold standard for how to evaluate a company and its performance. And the balanced scorecard's big insight, I think, was to get companies internally to think about, well, what if you don't just focus on financial measures, there are other things that are going to affect your performance. And maybe they won't affect them today, but they're going to affect them in the short term, midterm, long term. Building in those other criteria, those other dimensions, and explicitly linking that to your strategy, to how your company is going to operate, what kind of big decisions it's going to make, that's really what the big insight of the balanced scorecard was meant to do. And at the time, uh, it, right now, it doesn't seem particularly revolutionary. It seems kind of obvious. We've been stuck in the ESG movement for a while. And Thinking about linking these things to corporate strategy seems pretty obvious. 
At the time, it was a pretty big, whoa, kind of moment. Find the full episode by searching for Is Business Broken wherever you listen to podcasts and learn more about the Mayrotra Institute for Business, Markets, and Society at ibms.bu.edu. This is On Point. I'm Jane Clayson. We're diving into the week's news with a terrific panel of guests this hour. Kimberly Atkins, senior news correspondent for WBUR. Eugene Scott, political reporter for The Washington Post. And Anita Kumar, White House correspondent and associate editor for Politico. Um, Back to Minneapolis for a moment. The state capital in St. Paul, Minnesota, was evacuated yesterday afternoon as a precaution. The National Guard has been called up there. Um, We had this question from Joe in Olympia, Washington. Um, He left us a voicemail asking a question about the media coverage of this story regarding George Floyd. My question is what the reluctance is from... Uh, report like headlines and news sources like saying he was killed because like when I see any of the videos or pictures of what's happened like it doesn't look like a death and I'm not trying to be inflammatory but it's just like I see headlines and it's just death at the hands or fatal incident and there are very few that are reporting it as a killing. Kimberly Atkins respond to our listener Joe there. Well I think that that kind of context is important. I mean, I think I can speak for myself that I, I referred to it uh, as a clear killing. We saw on video someone being asphyxiated by the knee of a police officer. There's really no other way to describe it. The question now that remains is what uh, prosecutors, what decisions prosecutors will make going forward as to what comes next. So I think that that is important in this context that we do describe what we know. Uh, the facts that we know very clearly. There are going to be a lot of other issues that uh, reporters will have to weigh clearly whatever the decision of prosecutors is and when it comes. We're going to have to describe that and and help uh, our audience understand that as well. It's very important. I know prosecutors said they want to move carefully. Some have cited the case of Freddie Gray in Baltimore uh, saying that it it was a rush to uh, make uh, to, to file charges and make arrests that ultimately doomed that case and made it it impossible to convict the officers in that case. And they don't want to do that. They want to have the strongest case they can moving forward. But you have this other competing interest of people wanting action now. Um, So I think throughout the entirety of the story, telling it like it is, is is crucially important for reporters to do. Eugene Scott, uh, Kim mentions Freddie Gray. I mean, I'm thinking of Eric Garner, the I can't breathe phrase so reminiscent of of that story in 2014 after police uh, put put Garner in a chokehold and he died. Um, You know, this is another moment in our country, another death, another cycle of of injustice. That's how many people see it and questions about this perennial issue of, of, of police brutality, Eugene. Eugene, are you there? We lost you for a minute. Anita Kumar, could you answer that? Sure. Um, You know, I think that's why we're seeing so much, you know, there's probably so many reasons we're seeing so much this week, so many of these protests across the country, but it really does resonate. It's not a one-time thing. Obviously, the circumstance of every single one of these cases is different, but there are these huge, um, you know, similarities. And it's, it's because of that, that people all over the country can feel that they can sympathize and empathize and understand what's going on because a lot of them have seen it in their own communities. And so that's why you're seeing these other protests crop up. And so I, I think that it's you know emblematic of what's going on in this country today. It's not a one-time issue or one-time deal. And it comes on the heels uh, of another incident in New York this week, a white woman calling the police on a black man who asked her to leash her dog in Central Park. Um, another racially charged uh, moment. Um, Kim Atkins, what caught your attention on this story? 
Yeah, so that uh, too leads to this sort of cumulative effect I talked about before uh, about the impact this is having on communities, including places where we're seeing protests. We saw uh, uh, Christian Cooper, who is a uh, bird watcher, uh, ask uh, a, a, a white woman, Amy Cooper, to put her dog on a leash, and she threatened to call the police and tell them that a black man was threatening her. And what I and a lot of other people recall from this statement are things like Emmett Till. She basically threatened to do the very thing that led to Emmett Till's death. She was in Central Park, uh, where the Central Park Five, if you recall, were uh, five men of color were wrongfully convicted uh, for an attack on a white woman. It conjures up an entire history uh, worth of weapon, uh, a history worth of weaponization of the threat of a black man. Um, and so while I saw a lot of commentary this week that suggested this was being overblown and, and this woman was simply having a bad day, it can't be read that way because, you know, whether it's the image of George Floyd in the street, whether it's the, the thought of being wrongfully convicted like the Central Park Five or, or being at having a police encounter that could end in your death – Black people think of themselves, their sons, their fathers, their brothers, every time they see an instance like this, and it conjures up fear, it conjures up trauma. And that's why this, I think, is very rightfully uh, a part of the conversation that we're having about race and police uh, today. Certainly. Uh, Let me play this clip. Christian Cooper, uh, the man uh, here, a Harvard graduate, uh, a birdwatching enthusiast who videoed the incident as it was happening to him, told CNN on Tuesday that he believes Amy Cooper, no relation, uh, that Amy Cooper's apology is sincere toward him, but he doubts that she grasps the full weight of her actions. That particular act was definitely racist. Um, and the fact that that was her recourse at that moment, granted it was a stressful situation, a sudden situation, um, you know, maybe a moment of spectacularly poor judgment, but she went there um, and had this racist act that she did. Eugene Scott, uh, the woman Amy Cooper fired from her job at an investment firm. Hashtags bird watching while black have been trending uh, just a couple of weeks ago, of course, running while black. Another hashtag that's that, that was uh, catching fire after the shooting of Ahmaud Arbery. Uh, your thoughts uh, before we move on here. I think one of the most important pieces of this conversation is that very often uh, when you have these type of interactions between uh, white people and black individuals and they reach the political space, there's a desire to associate these white individuals with MAGA and President Trump and more conservative uh, communities because the perception is that these communities have a, a lower view of diversity. But we found out that Amy Cooper was a donor to Pete Buttigieg, to Obama, and identifies as liberal and lives in the North. And so what this has done is expand this conversation to help us realize and recognize that white supremacy does not have any partisan uh, monopoly or geographical uh, home. It's all over the place. Let's move on uh, to uh, an extraordinary um, incident this week, Twitter fact-checking or posting a fact-checking notice on the president of the United States. In a tweet on Tuesday, President Trump tweeted incorrectly about voter fraud. And yesterday, in response, the president signed an executive order. Kim, what did that order say? Yeah, so the executive order, uh, in layman's terms, would seek to remove the protections uh, that Twitter and other social media platforms would have against liability uh, over what is published on uh, their site. Uh, what President Trump is trying to do is make it easier to regulate uh, social media companies because he claims that they are biased against conservatives. Uh, there are a number of legal hurdles to to his ability to actually do this, the the First Amendment being the largest, um, but also the the fact that the White House cannot force independent agencies like the Federal Communications uh, Commission uh, to act in a way that it could, you know, cabinet agencies of the White House. So th- this is probably a, a, a pretty empty threat, uh, but it's a political message to his supporters. Uh, he likes to craft these these divides, these these wars, cultural wars, uh, and, and pit uh, 
what he sees as political en- enemies against his supporters, or in this case, it would be conservatives against social media. Uh, but you know, it it, it is, it, and it's right in line to what the president does, whether it's uh, with fomenting divisions when it comes to things like NFL protests or the words that he said after Charlottesville, whether it's uh, battling the media uh, sometimes in real time during press conferences. It's the kind of fight, political fight, he likes to wage even if he doesn't have the law on his side. Anita Kumar, um, the president calls Twitter's fact-checking notice censorship uh, and this executive order, as Kim said, that he has signed would would limit the broad legal, legal protections that the federal law currently provides to social media platforms. It's interesting, though, as I read about this, couldn't this punishment that the president is threatening force social media companies to crack down even more on on customers just like Mr. Trump. Well, it could, but I'm not sure they're going to go that way. I think that they're all trying to figure out what their response is. And I'm pretty sure that we're going to see a lawsuit uh, pretty soon here by one of these companies or another company, because it really could stem. We, we think about Facebook and Twitter, but it could really go further. You know, it really does go further than that. Um, you know, I, I agree with Kim. I just don't know how far it's going to go because there are so many hurdles. Uh, there is going to be a court challenge that he is asking uh, independent agencies to get involved. And he's also asking state attorney generals to get involved and, um, and you know, and weigh in. And I'm not sure that they want to do that either. I mean, the critics of the president say this is something, it's a personal vendetta he has. He He's talking about his own personal issues, his own political issues. Why should the federal government be used uh, on his own political vendettas? And it's something that has been said the last three years when we've seen him try to act in other ways uh, when something has personally affected him. So, uh, but Kim is exactly right. We are going to hear about this for the next five or six months on the campaign trail. Uh, He's going to talk about it as much as he talks about his fights against the media. His supporters really like this. This is something that we've been expecting for really three years. They've been talking about it. Remember last summer he had that uh, event at the White House that people thought was a political event, but it was really to talk about bias against conservatives on um, on these social media platforms. So uh, it's been it's been coming for a while. Kim Atkins, back quickly to Minneapolis and President Trump's tweets. You mentioned them in in the first segment um, uh, with regard to George Floyd. He originally called. Um, George Floyd's death shocking, uh, but has now called the protesters thugs and said when the looting starts, the shooting starts. Twitter flagged that tweet uh, today. The White House then tweeted the president's tweet word for word. It was an extraordinary back and forth uh, today. Kim, what did you see in that? Yeah. So again, um, if you if you look at this, the first thing I did this morning was go back in the archives and look at uh, all the instances in which the president used the terminology of of use the word thug in particular, uh, and also seem to uh, call for or condone violence in some way. And it goes back to the 2016 campaign where there were protesters where uh, he said he would pay the legal fees to to those who physically attacked protesters. Uh, he's called he's called protesters uh, in various cities who were protesting police brutality thugs. It's shocking uh, to see, and it's certainly a 360 from the comments he made in the White House. But again, it comes straight from his playbook. This is a president who, when he received the nomination, the the, the Republican National Convention that nominated him to be uh, the presidential nominee in 2016, chance of Blue Lives Matter would break out. It's yet another cultural war that he sees no problem throwing fuel on uh, because he sees that as politically advantageous. So it didn't shock me at all. Uh, but it is still you know, distressing to see that the president of the United States seems to be uh, calling for violence against a, a group of people. Well, uh, moving on here, America passed a grim marker this week, 100,000 people in this country dead from coronavirus. Um, Weeks ago, the president insisted the death toll would fall, quote, substantially well below the 100,000 mark. And yet here we are, Eugene Scott. How did the president mark uh, this solemn occasion this week? Uh, Well, the president did not 
Um, and there was quite a bit of attention being paid to that, um, that these lives being lost, that were lost, um, and according to multiple studies, in part because of a slow response or reaction uh, from this administration when information was available about this upcoming pandemic, um, just grabbed headlines uh, and was noted by quite a few folks. Um, the best response, one could say, uh, the president had uh, to this uh, moment was a defensive one. He took to social media to praise his administration and his team for their response uh, to the coronavirus pandemic and believes that it has been uh, pretty exceptional. Uh, but the the number, the quantity, the, the weight of the lives lost uh, lead many people, especially his critics, to view this matter differently. Uh, we got unemployment numbers uh, again this week, and another 2.1 million new unemployment claims were filed last week in the United States. Anita Kumar, that means 41 million people have applied for aid since the outbreak uh, began in March. Um, companies still slashing jobs, Anita, even as businesses are starting to reopen, actually rehiring some of those laid off employees. Anita, what did you see in these numbers this week? Yeah, I mean, I think we, as as huge and extraordinary as they are, I think sort of pe- people had predicted it's why you're seeing the president and others really push for the reopening. They want to get things back as soon as possible. Uh, they want this to be over as quickly as possible, even though, um, you know, we've seen states reopening where they haven't met the guidelines or when they were when they first started to reopen they hadn't met the federal guidelines to reopen but they were going ahead and doing it anyway and i think there's you know we're we're having this health crisis but at the same time an economic crisis and there's so many people now including the president of the united states that has really turned their attention to the economic one how can we get out of this as soon as possible and restore that and and we can't look at what the president's doing without looking at his campaign for re-election, which is in only a few months. And this is the economy is what he was planning on running on. You know, the strongest economy, as he likes to say, we we did it once and now he's he's arguing he can do it again. He wants to return that economy and, and win a second term. More Americans have died of coronavirus in 12 weeks then died in Vietnam and in the Korean Wars combined. On Sunday, President Trump tweeted that, quote, cases, numbers and deaths are going down all over the country. Uh, Kim Kim Atkins, actually, total number of cases nationally have begun to decline. um, But hospitalizations outside New York, New Jersey and Connecticut have actually increased in recent days. What are you hearing in the president's comments? Yes. And there's, you know, it depends on where you are, but there are places uh, such as in Alabama where ICU beds are in short supply. Um, There is still the the medical crisis of this is still very high, but the president is looking for good news as he has throughout this and and sees this number as uh, something to be touted while, you know, just like the economic numbers, the, the medical numbers don't paint such a clear picture. Kimberly Atkins, Eugene Scott, Anita Kumar, stick with me. We are discussing the week in the news. Up next, we'll talk about Congress. They're back and proxy voting. We'll also look at the SpaceX mission that did not happen. Much more to come. I'm Jane Clayson. This is On Point. We'll be right back. A gruesome scandal at the nation's most prestigious university shines a light on a macabre and lucrative world of buying and selling human remains. Human body parts taken by a manager at the Harvard Medical School morgue and then sold to customers online. So my first skull is right there on the top shelf. That's my first and my favorite. I'm reporter Ali Jarmani, and this story raises some tough questions. How should we treat the dead? And who gets to decide? There should be some middle ground where we treat deceased tissues differently than we treat old refrigerators. This is Postmortem, the stolen bodies of Harvard, a new season of WBUR's Last Scene. Listen and follow Last Scene wherever you get your podcasts. This is On Point. I'm Jane Clayson. Well, coming up on Monday on Point, we're discussing the historical forces behind George Floyd's killing by police in Minneapolis. What conversations are you having around these incidents in your household or your community? Tell us your story. 617-353-0683.
Well, today we're reviewing the week's news with a roundtable of top reporters. I'm joined by Kimberly Atkins, senior news correspondent for WBUR, Eugene Scott, political reporter for The Washington Post, and Anita Kumar, White House correspondent and associate editor for Politico. Well, Congress uh, fundamentally changed how it operates this week. Lawmakers cast their first ever proxy votes on the House floor yesterday, marking a historical and controversial moment for the chamber. Eugene Scott, what's the significance of this moment? Historic, really. Well, one of the most uh, significant parts of this is that it could change how Congress uh, operates in the future. Uh, Historically, uh, we have wanted all lawmakers to be present, required um, them to be present to vote um, through wars, through natural disasters. um, And to see this approach pivot during a pandemic, um, it's raising a lot of criticism, specifically from uh, voters on the right who fear uh, that this could uh, change how just Americans vote overall. Well, uh, right. And this has turned into a partisan flashpoint. Uh, Democrats say proxy voting is the only way to keep members safe. Republicans say it's unconstitutional. They've already filed a lawsuit challenging uh, the voting method here. Uh, This is House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy of California on Wednesday saying that Republicans would stand in the way of proxy voting in the House. For more than 231 years, never have we seen a proxy vote on the floor of the House. This challenges the Constitution only to protect and empower a speaker. It violates the Constitution. It's a dereliction of duty by its members. Dereliction of duty. Kimberly Atkins, what was the response up there this week? Well, uh, Democrats, including uh, Congressman Jim McGovern, who's, who chairs the the House Rules Committee and who crafted this rule uh, after an effort at a bipartisan effort to come up with a solution of legislating during the coronavirus at a time when D.C. is still shut down, which is an important uh, point. Uh, he said that this was an effort to try to uh, keep the government going, to protect people. There are a lot of lawmakers, most of those who did vote by proxy from California. Uh, there are a lot of people who just physically found it difficult to get back to D.C. in time to take these votes and that they were trying to move ahead so that the business uh, of the Congress could go forward. Uh, but Republicans are claiming that this is a power grab, essentially, by Democrats who want to uh, phone it in, in the words of uh, Congressman McCarthy. So we see a, a, a bitter partisan divide in not only what Congress is doing, but how they do it. Bitter divide also this week, Kim Atkins, uh, with the FISA bill. Uh, What happened there? Yeah. So one of the things that we thought might get this uh, new proxy style vote is the bill to reauthorize FISA, uh, which is uh, the, the the bill that allows uh, for surveillance of foreign individuals and has come into uh, a lot of uh, scrutiny lately, uh, particularly by the president, who has been very angry uh, at the, the way that the Russia investigation began and who has claimed that uh, his former campaign aide, Carter page was uh, illegally surveilled, uh, which was a part of that. Generally speaking, the Republicans were very much in favor of passing the reauthorization of FISA. But once the president tweeted that he was against it, Republicans largely suddenly fell in line uh, and voiced their opposition too, which caused uh, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi to pull the bill from a vote when it became really clear that uh, if it did pass, which was uh, a still unknown that the president would likely veto it. Speaking of Congress, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell made an extensive pitch this week uh, for Americans to put on face masks. McConnell said, quote, there's no stigma to wearing a mask. And he spoke directly to younger Americans when he said, you have an obligation to others. Uh, This was in direct contrast, Anita Kumar, to President Trump, who mocked Joe Biden this week for wearing a mask uh, in public. What did you see there, Anita? that everything has become a political issue. Right. Um, you know, just the Joe Biden, Donald Trump back and forth, it really has become a political issue. You know, we've seen the president starting to get out, you know, each week he's now going on trips. We haven't really seen him in a face mask. He's uh, worn one just really briefly, um, but we haven't seen him out and about doing that. We see him at the White House being in close quarters, not six feet 
with some of his staff and not wearing a face mask. And you, you have Joe Biden basically saying, calling him a fool, saying that, you know, this shouldn't be partisan. He should be doing this. But this is what we've seen with the president over and over, that he's not actually following the guidance of his own employees of the federal government. And so we've seen that sort of back and forth. So Senator McConnell's statement was quite striking because it's not a Republican Democratic thing if the Republican leader is saying that. Here's the clip you made reference to, Anita. President Trump um, retweeted a photo of Joe Biden on Monday mocking him for wearing a mask to Memorial Day services. And here's Biden responding to an interview on CNN on Tuesday. He's a fool, an absolute fool to talk that way. I mean, every leading doc in the world is saying we should wear a mask when you're in a crowd. And especially when you know you're going to be in a position where you're going to inadvertently get closer than 12 feet to somebody. Eugene Scott, I mean, the name calling, the mocking, the back and forth, um, your thoughts. Well, I think one thing that's really interesting about the face mask conversation is between Biden and Trump is what it communicates to a certain demographic of voters. We know that uh, President Trump was successful in part because he campaigned on being a, a tough man, um, a manly man. And for him, a face mask uh, looks weak, and that's not what he wants to communicate to his base. But I think what Biden is trying to do in reaching some of those same voters is saying that there's nothing weak or unmanly about protecting yourself and the community and your neighbors. And so there's a there's not just a messaging thing happening, but it's a very different conflicting idea of what it means uh, to be an American and to be a, a strong leader in America. And Kim Atkins, you know, a, a real back and forth this week as well between Joe Biden and Donald Trump about what plans should be happening during the pandemic and what leadership looks like uh, right now. What did you hear in that, Kim? Yes, I think that's definitely uh, that's definitely true. Look, you have uh, former Vice President Biden who is trying to campaign himself during a pandemic. Uh, he's at a disadvantage in that Donald Trump has the presidency and the platform thereof to keep his profile high during this. And he's been trying to find a way to message. And we've uh, increasingly seen him do that. He, he's speaking today about the what's happening uh, in in Minneapolis. You're seeing him more and more sort of take that make try to make this contrast, not just on policy, but uh, in 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 principle uh, against uh, the president. And so I think we will see more of this, particularly as the president tries to continue to, again, stow divisions over things, including masks. Uh, we will have to see the ways that uh, Joe Biden is able to respond. Sticking with the 2020 presidential race for a moment, Eugene Scott, you've been reporting this week on how the George Floyd story in Minneapolis might impact the 2020 uh, presidential election. Give us, give us your reporting. Give us your sense. Well, initially, we saw both of uh, the candidates, uh, Joe Biden and President Trump, uh, speak out uh, about how unjust and unfair it was for George Floyd to lose his life the way he did. Uh, but we also saw them praise Minneapolis police for responding very quickly uh, to uh, the four individuals who were uh, are now suspected of being responsible for his death. And I think what was really important in that uh, response uh, is that we know that both of these leaders really do not have any desire and perhaps cannot afford to come off as anti-police. Uh, they both are appealing to voters who are uh, very law and order and uh, in their worldview, who really want a leader who is tough on crime. Um, and many of those voters uh, conflict in what their vision of America should be. Then voters who are really concerned about police violence against uh, black people in America. And so watching these two candidates try to figure out a way to win a broad swath of voters without offending other voters uh, has been quite interesting. Anita Kumar, you've been reporting on this as well. Yeah, I mean, it's it's just a, it, what we're seeing now with the campaign is like some nothing we've ever seen, right? I mean, really, President Trump has got uh, all the attention right now because of the coronavirus. And I think the coming months are going to be really important to see how this campaign shakes out. Are we going to still be talking about coronavirus in a few months? I, I sense yes. I, but the question is, is that going to be all it is? If it's about uh, coronavirus and the federal response to that, uh, the Democrats and Joe Biden feel very comfortable with that. They feel like he has not done a good job. Uh, they did not 
take it seriously enough in the beginning. There weren't enough tests. There weren't enough medical supplies. But as the campaign gets really going, this general election gets going in these coming months, is it going to break out and be about other things like Eugene just said, or is it going to be about other issues? And we don't really know because we don't know how coronavirus is really going to uh, continue on. Um, let me, we lost you there, Anita. Let me move um, briefly because our time is short. I wanted to get to this important announcement this week from Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, who said that the U.S. State Department no longer considers Hong Kong to have significant autonomy under Chinese rule, which indicates that the Trump administration will likely end some or all of U.S. government special trade and economic relations uh, with Hong Kong. This was such an interesting development, Kim Atkins, uh, during a time when, you know, relations are, um, are are sketchy at best between the U.S. and and China. What did you see here, Kim? Yeah, and it's very complex. I mean, on the one hand, the reason that Secretary of State Pompeo said this is because of China's uh, treatment and refusal to acknowledge the the sovereignty uh, of the. Uh, the serenity of Hong Kong, uh, which has caused the State Department to to acknowledge that. But at the same time, you also have the president who has been uh, in one form or another waging a trade war with China, one that he seems to relish and one that he uh, intends to uh, seems to intend to uh, continue. This could lead to sanctions against China. And all of these things will have not only political ramifications, but it will have effects on the market, which the markets in, in recent weeks have begun to recover from the impact of the coronavirus virus. And uh, there are a lot of fears that this will send them going downward again. So all of this is a really uh, complex set of geopolitical and economic factors uh, that could just add more turmoil uh, to the economy and in the middle of a presidential election year. Kim, thanks for that uh, regarding Hong Kong. Um, Let's um, wrap up here with a big announcement uh, at Cape Canaveral on Wednesday, but it was not the announcement we were expecting. NASA officials made a different uh, call than the one they'd planned for the SpaceX rocket launch. Here it is. We are not going to launch today. You are go for 5.100 launch scrub. 5.100. It was a good effort by the teams, and we understand, and we'll uh, meet you there. The nation's trailblazing return to human spaceflight from American soil will have to wait. Eugene Scott, the weather just did not cooperate. It absolutely did not. And we know that uh, this was something that the administration is looking to to point to as a, a win, um, an advancement in uh, technology and competition with other uh, countries throughout, throughout the world in the areas of uh, science and exploration. And, and this week just will not give uh, America or the White House the win that the president was hoping it would. Uh, but this is obviously something that we uh, don't expect. Uh, the president and uh, his, his officials and surrogates to back away from, and we'll keep their eye on um, in terms of focusing on it in the future. Well, uh, SpaceX is uh, a company founded by billionaire Elon Musk. This is a new era of private sector transport to space, Anita Kumar. Um, this is a big moment. What's the significance of this? Yeah, I mean, it's really something that the United States hasn't done before and has talked about for a long time, having a private company. So NASA astronauts get on a private company's, uh, you know, ship, basically. Um, And, you know, there are a lot of companies that have talked for years about, you know, not just this, what's happening now where NASA astronauts are on there, but hey, could this be the beginning of uh, commercial space flight for others out there one day, you know. And so you are seeing that President Trump and, and President Trump is expected to go back. They're trying this, you know, take two. They're trying this again. Um, the vice president is expected to go back. They are really have a lot invested in this. They want this to be part of the Trump legacy, the Trump administration legacy, that they're moving the United States in this direction. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, as our time comes to uh, completion here, I'd like each of you to look forward for us. Open your reporter's notebooks. Uh, What are you keeping an eye on uh, this week? A quick hit from each of you, round robin. Um, Eugene Scott, we'll start with you. I'm very much focused on uh, what the administration uh, is doing as pressure increases uh, on responding to the the death of uh, George Floyd and how the issue of 
uh, police violence uh, against black people is, goes beyond this. Anita Kumar? I am focused on the Trump administration looking at punishing China. They should be talking about that here pretty soon and specifically looking at whether they will not allow uh, Chinese students here on visas or what other uh, ways they're going to be looking at punishing China for what they're saying is starting the coronavirus and not and not stopping it from spreading. Hmm. Kimberly Atkins, about a minute left for you. Well, the Supreme Court is set to issue its biggest decisions of the term moving ahead, including the fate of DACA, uh, the the policy that President Trump rescinded, and also cases dealing with abortion rights. So there are going to be a lot of blockbuster uh, decisions coming out of the Supreme Court, again, in the middle of an election year. And they may also decide to take up a Second Amendment issue on guns uh, that will be decided next term. So a lot of hot button issues there. And in Minneapolis, what are you seeing there, Kim? In Minneapolis, look, I think I agree with Anita uh, and uh, and Eugene. We have to watch the way, particularly the White House responds to this. I definitely will be doing that uh, and, and moving forward. It, it's going to be an appetite to politicize this uh, in a lot of ways when a lot of people really are looking to see justice here. We will be watching. Uh, Great reporting from our panel today. Thank you all for taking the time. Anita Kumar, White House correspondent and associate editor for Politico. Anita, thank you very much. Sure. Thanks for having me. Eugene Scott, uh, political reporter for The Washington Post. Eugene, thank you. Glad to be here. And Kimberly Atkins, senior news correspondent for WBUR. Always great to have you, Kim. Always a pleasure. Listeners, have a good weekend. Thank you. I'm Jane Clayson. This is On Point. Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Listen on for a preview of one of the episodes. ESG, or environmental social governance, challenges businesses to think beyond the immediate bottom line. But before ESG, the Balance Scorecard did something similar. Questrom's Eddie Riedel explains. The big thing that was groundbreaking about the Balance Scorecard is really this idea to move beyond thinking about financial statements, which everybody had thought about since the 1920s, right? That was kind of the gold standard for how to evaluate a company and its performance. And the balanced scorecard's big insight, I think, was to get companies internally to think about, well, what if you don't just focus on financial measures? There are other things that are going to affect your performance, and maybe they won't affect them today, but they're going to affect them in the short-term, mid-term, long-term. Building in those other criteria, those other dimensions, and explicitly linking that to your strategy, to how your company is going to operate, what kind of big decisions it's going to make, that's really what the big insight of the balanced scorecard was meant to do. And at the time, uh, it, right now, it doesn't seem particularly revolutionary. It seems kind of obvious. We've been stuck in the ESG movement for a while, and thinking about linking these things to corporate strategy seems pretty obvious. At the time, it was a pretty big, whoa, kind of moment. Find the full episode by searching for Is Business Broken wherever you listen to podcasts and learn more about the Mayrotra Institute for Business, Markets, and Society at ibms.bu.edu.